Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. This is London, but of course you can be watching and listening to this show all over the world. Again, more than half a million people watched or listened to all or part of last week's show. I have just flown to Pakistan and back over the course of three days, madcap even by my standards. That's why I wasn't standing up for the entree, but my mind is as sharp as ever. We're going to be talking about Prince Andrew. In fact, there's a poll. Uh, did you find Prince Andrew's testimony uh, on the television in Britain last night to be persuasive? I don't know the exact words of the poll, but it'll be coming up on the screen. I only saw it on uh, my telephone. I didn't see it on a bigger screen, but it looked pretty toe-curlingly, cringe-worthy, agonizingly stupid an idea for a member of the royal family to undergo, at his own request, trial by television at the hands of Emily Maitlis. For those done certain as not since it's a royal knockout has there been a more excruciating royal performance than this. Let me uh, summarize uh, his position. He has no recollection whatsoever of ever meeting the 17-year-old girl who alleges that he more than once had sex with her. Even though there is a picture of him with his arm around her and her arm around him, with Ghislaine Maxwell, daughter of the late Robert Maxwell, grinning in the foreground. The picture is said to have been taken at Ghislaine Maxwell's London apartment. Now, um, it's possible that pictures can be faked, of course, and if it is uh, Prince Andrew's position that uh, that's not him in that picture, at least not with her, uh, then that's one thing. But the reasons he gave for not actually having done this filthy deed of, uh, of participating in what was the illegal trafficking of a young girl under age from the United States to London for immoral purposes, a crime under American law, uh, his reasons why he have to be innocent border on the bazaar. He tells us that he couldn't have done this because he was in Pizza Express in Woking. Now, it is safe to say that no member of the royal family of Britain, the House of Windsor, the former House of Hanover, has ever come up with that excuse before. It's almost certainly true that no member of the royal family has ever been in Pizza Express. I myself am a fan of Pizza Express, but I've never seen a royal in there. Uh, with his daughter uh, for a party, he said. 
But in any case, that was only at four o'clock in the afternoon. How does that negate the allegation that you went to Tramp nightclub later that evening and you sweated profusely before having sex with that woman? Now, um, he says that at that time, he couldn't sweat. He didn't sweat because of some adrenaline reaction when he was a war hero in the Falklands War. He was shot at and that this triggered something in his system that meant that he couldn't sweat. There's no way of knowing, of course, now at this distance, if that is true or not. He certainly was sweating last night. Most journalists and broadcasters, and I include myself in that, think it was a very stupid thing to do, to put himself up uh, with no legal protection, no legal procedure for trial by television. Uh, but the question is, do you believe him? Here's the poll now up. Do you believe Prince Andrew's account of events? So far, 7% say yes, and 93% say no. Moving on to another man with uh, problems that are not entirely dissimilar. Um, Boris Johnson's erstwhile technology teacher, you know, the one in Shoreditch, whom he was visiting several hours and afternoon when he was the mayor of London, but not putting it in his official diary. Uh, the woman who was teaching him about the hard drive and the RAM rate and uh, spreadsheets and all of that. Uh, Miss Arcuri has come to England to conduct a speaking tour throughout the duration of the rest of this British general election. What could possibly go wrong? It is alleged, and the police are now investigating, that this woman received vast sums in public largesse uh, to which she may not have been entitled and that she traveled on official trade delegations uh, when she had no right to be on the airplane. And that it's difficult to separate those two facts from the fact that she was the intimate teacher on technology matters of the then mayor of London, whose grants and whose airplanes these were. Now, um, it's a pity we have to put it this way, but this is a woman scorned. She says in the papers today uh, that she is being treated shabbily by the CAD, the Mountbank, the Bounder, Boris Johnson now, of course, Prime Minister. Um, that will come as no surprise to many a woman and her husband, uh, cuckolded by Boris Johnson over the years, even children fathered. Uh, whilst uh, the mother was in wedlock with someone else. Now, the fact that he's a cad, a bounder, a mountbank will come as a surprise to nobody. But he is skating on very thin ice. When this woman called him more than once, he immediately hung up on her. He refused to talk to her. And so she's now saying, I'm being treated like some kind of one-night stand when Boris knows exactly that that is not true. So I think there may be trouble ahead for Boris Johnson on this front. The police have helpfully said that uh, they'll give uh, a verdict on whether charges or other measures need to be brought on the Arcuri business 
after the general election. Most people would think in a general election as long as this one, it might have been possible to get at least some preliminary findings out into the public domain before the general election on the basis that it's quite important that the British people know who really is their prime minister and what his character uh, really is, his conduct really has been. Donald Trump, another fellow uh, out of the same stable, you may think, is in a different kind of trouble. The Democrats controlling the House of Representatives have begun what looks ominously like a process that will lead to the passing of impeachment resolutions in the House of Representatives, and perhaps very quickly indeed. It's all about Ukraine gate and Russia gate and girls wetting themselves uh, through excitement in Moscow hotel rooms at the prospect of being in the company of Donald J. Trump before he became president of the United States. Um, it's sordid, murky, dirty waters, if you'll forgive the pun, uh, but it is going forward. Now, it seems to me that the Republicans cannot possibly uh, allow this impeachment process to succeed in the Senate, which is where the trial of Donald Trump will take place. They can't because this would be their own destruction too in the run-up to a presidential election and when so many of them are also facing threats to their legislative careers. But there may come a point at which Donald Trump is so damaged goods that the Republicans will calculate that they should ditch him and find someone else before the presidential election next year. We'll be talking to the peerless Chris Hedges, the journalist, author, activist, broadcaster, uh, and that does him no justice, that resume. He is one of the hottest journalistic properties in the United States. So we'll be talking to him shortly about the Donald Trump affair. And we'll be talking to a young woman in Bolivia. The events this week in Bolivia have broken the hearts, not just of the indigenous people of Bolivia and throughout Latin America, but broken the hearts of millions around the world who'd grown to know and love the president, the legitimate, rightful president of Bolivia, Evo Morales. The coup, when it came, was uh, bloody, but not as bloody as it may yet get. Uh, they forced Evo Morales to resign, and they forced him to flee to Mexico. They burned down his house. They burned down his sister's house. They tarred and feathered and threatened to murder mayors and other senior municipal officials loyal to President Evo Morales. And now they're gunning down Morales supporters on the streets of Bolivia in significant numbers and an uptick in that violence is to be expected. Whether it will ever reach the levels of violence we've seen in France over the last exactly one year, we'll have to wait and see. But you may be surprised if you watch the mainstream media that almost no 
coverage of the horrific, violent clashes between the state forces of President Macron and hundreds of thousands of his own people has been shown or broadcast on the British media. I'm not entirely sure why. Some people think there's a D-notice, that the government have told the media not to uh, produce that footage in the British media, presumably for fear that it might catch on here. No one has proved that point to me sufficiently for me to accept that yet. Certainly, no one has ever handed me a D notice, and if they did, I'd go to Trafalgar Square and read it out from the plinth. So perhaps they imagined I was a lost cause, but I have not yet met anyone else who has been served a D notice. That leaves open then only the possibility uh, that the journalists, if that's what we can call them, are themselves deliberately suppressing events of great moment that are taking place just 29 miles away from here, where I sit in England. The same journalists have flown across half the world, more than half, to Hong Kong to endlessly report on less violent altercations between protesters and state forces there. So it's not that they don't have the money to cross the channel. It's not that they don't have the stamina to investigate what's happening in France. It's that they have decided not to. And we'll be joined tonight by a yellow vest, a guest from the streets of France, who's not only a yellow vest, but an activist for Julian Assange, which is the proximate reason why he's here in England this weekend. Um, Donald Trump never seems to have been out of trouble since he got elected. First it was the Russia gate, uh, then it was the Pussy gate, uh, then it was the Ukraine gate. He's been going through gates for the entirety of his first term as uh, United States president. Will he get a second term? Well, many informed observers think that if he's left alone and allowed to contest a new presidential election, that he will, in fact, be able to be re-elected. And that might be the reason why the Democrats are determined to put him out of the game before he reaches the starting lineup. I myself thought at the beginning, and said so here at the beginning, uh, that so uh, crazed, unhinged was this Ukraine gate story uh, I thought it was the opposite of what the story ought to have been. The real story was Joe Biden, not Donald Trump. But it seems to have found traction and legs and may very well succeed, at least in the House of Representatives. Let's get the expert testimony of Chris Hedges, journalist, broadcaster, extraordinaire. Chris, welcome to the mother of all talk shows. Thank you, George. Tell me... Uh, is Donald Trump in very serious trouble? Uh, you'd have to see significant defections within the Senate, within the Republican Party in the Senate. Um, at, at, and I think it's 
certainly there is a sentiment within the Republican Party establishment, despite the kind of fealty they pay to Trump, uh, there's a deep uh, anti-Trump sentiment. Whether that will break through uh, in impeachment, I don't know. Uh, but I think we should be clear about what's happening here. This isn't about uh, reinstating the rule of law. Uh, this is really driven by the deep state. Who's the deep state? Uh, these are the bankers, the corporatists, the lobbyists, uh, the intelligence agencies, the government bureaucrats, the military, the technocrats, who uh, have uh, turned on Trump because of the mismanagement of empire. Uh, it's very hard to trumpet yourself as the guardian of liberty and democracy and freedom when you have Trump uh, blathering on incoherently about himself, inciting racist violence, uh, insulting and alienating our traditional allies, along with his belittlement of the judicial system in the United States, the press, the Congress, uh, you know, misspelled, tweeted inanities that come out, uh, as well as his impulsive sabotaging a bipartisan uh, foreign and domestic policy. But his greatest sin, and his perhaps most unforgivable sin in the eyes of the deep state, has been his criticism of the endless wars in the Middle East, even though, of course, he lacks both the intellectual and organizational skills to do anything about it. That, I think, is is what has sent the deep state out for the jugular. That's what this impeachment process is about. Uh, they, of course, we saw two years with the Mueller investigation. Uh, turned out to be a dud. There was no collusion. They have seized on the transcript of this phone call to the president of Ukraine. Uh, and of course, they're very carefully, Nancy Pelosi and others describing this as bribery. You'll hear that term constantly. Uh, coming out of the mouths of the Democratic Party leadership because bribery is, under the Constitution, an impeachable offense. Um, yes, I think, uh, George, you're very right to bring up the corruption uh, of the Bidens. Uh, and let's not forget that when, before Hunter Biden worked for a gas company for $50,000 a month, I mean, what else do you call it? but legalized bribery, he was an executive in one of the major credit card companies uh, in Delaware when his father was a senator. Most of our credit cards for tax reasons are based in Delaware. So um, yes, they, they have completely ignored the deep corruption within the Democratic Party establishment, which is epitomized by Hunter Biden itself. Um, but that's, what's, that, that's what this impeachment is about, is about the deep state removing uh, Trump because he is mismanaging the handling of empire. A brilliant uh, tour of the horizon, Chris. Thank you for that. Now, um, it'll pass the House of Representatives. I originally did not think that it would even be put. Now I think it'll be passed. And then it's about whether the Republicans stay firm. If they stay firm, he cannot actually be impeached though it will cast a big shadow uh, over the presidential election campaign next year. Um, how would you calibrate the risks to Trump of the Republicans concluding that this man is too much trouble, more trouble than he's worth, and we ought to ditch the pilot and find a new one? 
Well, the new one would be Mike Pence, uh, and this is the anointed candidate of the Christian right, uh, the Christian fascists, as I call them. I don't use that term lightly. I graduated from seminary. I uh, come out of a religious tradition. Um, I, I don't know, and I don't think anyone knows. Uh, Trump has successfully turned the Republican Party uh, into a personality cult. You see it at his rallies. Uh, Republican candidates and, and politicians that don't uh, pay loyalty to this Trump cult uh, are resigning in droves or not running for reelection, or like Lindsey Graham, uh, you know, acting as kind of obsequious uh, courtiers and echo chambers to the White House. Um, I think deep down inside, they don't like him. Uh, he's a hard guy to like. Um, uh, but whether they'll turn, I think that is the great unknown. It's not a question I can answer. It's just uh, they lost an election this uh, weekend, didn't they? And uh, Trump gave two speeches, went there and gave two rallies. Uh, but this, the, the Trump candidate still... How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Lost. Yes, that's true. It's not the first time, by the way. Uh, you know, we saw in, in other special elections that a Trump-endorsed candidate lost. Um, but I think that I think the Democratic Party strategy is very risky because uh, what they did for two years is blame the election of Trump on Russia. Well, that didn't work. Uh, now they're trying to impeach Trump uh, uh, over, you know, quote unquote, bribery. But no one except for Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, who the Democratic Party donor class have decided is neither of whom are going to get the nomination. In fact, there have been several articles in The New York Times about the donor class plotting uh, to if Biden is weak, bring in uh, maybe Michael Bloomberg. Hillary Clinton is now talking about running again. Uh, and so they just will not address the social inequality, which the Democratic Party, especially under the Clintons, uh, orchestrated, uh, that I think is the main driving factor towards uh, the very legitimate rage on the part of especially the white working class, which saw Trump 
get elected. Um, and the utter refusal on the part of the Democratic Party leadership to address this reality and attempt to demonize, possibly impeach Trump. I think it's a very risky strategy, and I think it may not work, especially if they cough up a lackluster, uh, you know, hack uh, like Joe Biden, who has had his fingers in every disaster uh, that the United States empire has orchestrated, starting with the wars in Iraq, uh, the whole uh, system of mass incarceration, the explosion of mass incarceration in this country, the militarization of police, uh, the trade agreements, the NAFTA, all the betrayals of the working class. Biden was front and center for all of that. Uh, and I just think the Democratic Party uh, and its donor base are really, really out of touch, as we saw in 2016, and they remain out of touch. Uh, and so this is this is their election strategy, but um, it's not guaranteed to work. Can that really be serious that Hillary Clinton is thinking of entering the race at this 11th hour? Well, Hillary Clinton said yesterday she's under, I'm using her words, quote, enormous pressure. <laughs> uh, look, these people, the Clintons are pathological uh, addicts of power uh, and have been for decades. Um, and uh, I, I, yes, I think it is. It is serious. Uh, you know, I, I think it's a serious possibility. Wow. Yeah, I know. Um, well, that, let, that's let, let me they are. Yeah, exactly. Let me turn, if I may, uh, to something that matters uh, a lot to both of us. Uh, the events uh, that unfolded in the week in Bolivia, uh, the United States liberal class, uh, how are they taking the overthrow of the only indigenous leader uh, in the continent, the president much beloved by people around the world? Um, are they jumping ship? from Bolivia as they were, as they did previously on the Venezuela issue? Yeah, we go back to 2009 with Honduras. I mean, there have been a series of reversals throughout Latin America, um, you know, Bolivia being one of the last holdouts. It's not, I mean, it's great that he's indigenous, but he's also uh, a left-wing and a socialist and um, the corporate entities and the empire have had it out for him for a long time. So uh, there isn't much outcry, unfortunately. Um, and what's hap happened to Evo Morales fits a kind of pattern. Uh, now, whether it's Ecuador, whether it's Venezuela, uh, Argentina, I mean, on and on and on, we have seen uh, a, a rolling back of progressive governments within the region, and this has been especially egregious in Central America, where it's handed over to these militarized narco cartels that have turned uh, countries like El Salvador, Guatemala, which are major trafficking countries for drugs, into the United States, uh, into, and especially Honduras, into just killing capitals. You have that's why you have a thousand people a day fleeing um, the violence, which is, I mean, these are some of the highest homicide rates in the world. Uh, and this is, uh, you know, this is this is directly attributable to the interference of the empire in overthrowing uh, governments that were socialist or socialist leaning. It's all gone quiet on the Iranian front. I flew, uh, I flew down the middle of the Straits of Hormuz yesterday, and uh, only a few weeks ago I'd have been afraid of being shot out of the sky. Um, why has it gone quiet on the Iranian front? 
because the U.S. military does not want a war with Iran. Okay. And Iran has made it very clear that there are numerous military installations throughout the Middle East uh, that will be obliterated if there is a war. And uh, and I think that that has put the brakes on it. Uh, you have uh, Hawks, uh, Bolton, although he's left the White House, uh, Pompeo, uh, of course, the Israel lobby, uh, uh, they all want it. Uh, but the, the Pentagon has been adamant, because I think they're, they've got their hands full as it is with all the other failed states they've created around Iran. Now, uh, he's coming here, uh, Chris, uh, overpaid, oversexed, and over here. Donald Trump's coming here in the last few days of the British general election. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> well, I, I'm sure he will be free with his advice. Uh, well, if I were the Corbyn campaign, I'd probably uh, roll out the red carpet. Uh, I, I can't imagine how he's... Well, you see Boris Johnson's kind of keeping him at arm's length. Um, he's a he's kind of a hand grenade, a human hand grenade. Um, and, uh, uh, I mean, let's hope he... He does his best to get Jeremy Corbyn and Labour in power. <laughs> Chris Edges, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Chris Edges, what a man. Now, do you believe Prince Andrew's account of events? Yes, 4%. No, 96%. Hasn't worked out well for you, Andy. Randy, Andy, as you're known. There's some utterly hilarious material now coming in on the Prince Andrew thing. The Van Guardian says, uh, I know this is true because I was walking. I was in. <laughs> I know this is true because I was in Walking Pizza Express March 10th, 2001. Everyone was gulping down their extra spicy pepperoni pizzas. And as I looked over my shoulder, there sat a man, the only man, failing to sweat out the chili. Truly, he was a prince among men. And Steve says, people believing Prince Andrew are seriously gullible. Les Typing says, I think Prince Andrew saw the last of the old days where once you hit a certain level of society, you could do whatever you wanted and get away with it. Jane A., great friend of the show, says, I had to rub my eyes as I watched it, as I believed they were playing tricks. And Michael East says, only 7% say yes on your poll. All right, who shared the poll around Buckingham Palace? I don't think there'd be many people in Buckingham Palace voting for Andrew. It's still 95 to 5 uh, with uh, 1,777 votes in so far. Now, I'm joined by our editor and a man who could scarcely be more experienced in media. Man who's been on virtually every publication in Fleet Street, been on television and radio uh, all over the country, indeed, in much of the world. Ron Mackay, Ron, welcome. I just wanted to ask you, um, what thought process would have gone into making the decision to be interviewed by Emily Maitlis last night? Uh, clearly not a lot of <laughs> thought went into it, because it was... Do you think that's right? Do you think... Well, it was, I think it it was, was lightly taken. No, I think it was his arrogance. He overruled his media advisor who has resigned as a result of it. So it's, uh, you know, it's, I think, symptomatic of, of Andrew, what we know about him, that he's arrogant, bullheaded, 
and clearly thought that he could carry it off rather than be the, carried uh, out. <laughs> what were the key uh, failures in his performance last night? Well, he looked entirely shifty, did he not? Yeah. I mean, apart from what he said, uh, if he didn't sweat... Um, he was he definitely was, sweating last night. Yeah, he definitely was sweating. His adrenaline uh, imbalances come back into yeah. normal. I mean, as a journalist, I mean, wearing two hats here may have to borrow one of yours, George. As a journalist, it's manner, isn't it? It's just wonderful what he did. But as his media advisor, you must say, why did you do that? Why did yeah. you ignore me? Why did you make such an awful burach of it, to use a Highland word? It was a complete catastrophe. And um, what do you think the uh, consequences will, will be? I mean, and up to a point, he's got diplomatic immunity and so on. He's not going to face any consequences. So um, maybe he genuinely doesn't care what the public think about it. Well, I mean, he has said, has he not, that he's willing to testify in the States if it comes to it. Has he? He has said that, yeah. Because um, he's not obliged to, because he, he does have diplomatic immunity. Yeah, yeah, but he's volunteered it. He's comprehensively denied it, says he was. The girl, yeah. But yeah. he has admitted the uh, unwisdom uh, of going to stay. <laughs> you may say, how could he do otherwise? Going to stay in Epstein's mansion after... Epstein was convicted of being a paedophile. Yeah. As he put it, it was convenient. Um, it's a nice, convenient place yeah, to stay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Without any security, one presumes, just with his pal, Jeffrey. Yeah. The, 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 That's suspicious, isn't it? Totally, completely. Because he must have a, a protection officer. Of course he does, at least one, yeah. as we know. Um, so, yeah, there was no protection there. He was flying by himself, presumably. Uh, it's just the, the, the shocking bit about it is that he's not offered any kind of sympathy, any kind of apology to all of the women that Epstein trafficked, abused, took yeah, advantage uh, of. He, he could certainly have done that, should have uh, done that. He would say, presumably, well, uh, Epstein uh, was the criminal here, not me. Uh, I just uh, found his place convenient to stay even though he had a criminal conviction, I've let the Queen down. I mean, he didn't even say that particularly persuasively. He didn't look like a man who really believed that he thought he'd done something wrong, yeah. did he? I don't think Andrew does, sorry. Uh, not con convincingly. No, he was completely uh, wooden, false about it, uh, put on the spot. It just was, I go back to the car crash analogy, it was worse than that. It was a kind of media nuclear explosion involving Andrew. Quite a scoop for the BBC News now. They don't get that many. He, well, he obviously thought he was going to get a soft deal uh, out of Newsnight when it turned out not to be the case. Although the questioning wasn't all that hostile. He was just uh, an easy target, wasn't he? The yeah. obvious questions asked. Yeah. Um, Gillian Maxwell, his university friend... Epstein's right-hand woman, yep. Robert Maxwell, who stole your pension too, Good. Yeah. Uh, uh, daughter. How can they get away with not looking for her? How come there's not a single police force in the whole world looking for Ghislaine Maxwell, even though she is on the receiving end of allegations 
of uh, extremely serious nature uh, of uh, sexual crime. Well, that, that's simply incomprehensible. They must know. Someone must know where she is. The police must know where she is. She was photographed, was she not, in a restaurant in LA? Yeah, though that, that, that may have been uh, a fake. Yeah. But Andrew said he's, he, he saw her just a few months ago. Yeah. I mean, before the events, the suicide and so on. Do you think we'll ever know uh, what happened to Epstein in the jail? I mean, will truth out on that? One likes to think in America more than here, actually, that truth is truth does come out because uh, they've got more mm. uh, media protection for free speech and so on than we do. You think we'll ever know? Well, I'm a bit of a cynic on the conspiracy theories. Uh, it may well be that he did kill himself. Oh, yeah, I, I may very, I think that's most likely yeah. that he did kill himself. But, but he, was he, was to, he was allowed to. He was allowed to kill himself, yeah, seems yeah. to me. He was given licence. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, that seems incontestable yeah. to me. Given licence, if not the rope. <laughs> Enough rope <laughs> to hang himself. So what happens next? Does Andrew just carry on regardless? Uh, what role has he got now in public life? Well, it seems to be that today he's kind of doubled down on it by saying he thought he was right to give the interview. He seems to be the only person who th thinks that's the case, a testimony again to his arrogance. What happens is presumably all of the charities that he's involved with we'll are going start to go. dump him. Please, uh, stay away for a while mm. and see how it goes. Mind you, he still has the loyal support of Fergie, Duchess Fergie, yeah. as he the Duchess, as he referred to her last night. Yeah, I think it was her support not before the interview, rather yeah. than afterwards. Yeah, she said he was a giant of a man. Yeah, <laughs> that's why they divorced, presumably. <laughs> <laughs> the polls on the screen, look, it's not changing. 95% oh. say they don't believe Andrew's account. 5% say they do. But that 5% is, yeah, it's 100 people. So there's yeah. 100 people watching and listening to this, do believe Prince Andrew. No accounting for taste. Well, maybe this is the way that some Brits regard the royal family. They can't Can do, do no wrong. wrong. They're venerable. Do you yeah. think, uh, just in conclusion, you think it's uh, all been very damaging for the royals? Yes, yet again. Uh, there's a cycle to these things, isn't there? Mm. Where they go public, Diana case, and it all atomizes, and it's done it again. He, he can only have done it and apparently persuaded the Queen against the advice of the people who counted, the media advisers. And everyone who's ever dealt with him subsequently, giving him advice, says, why did he do it? It was the car crash. Well, tell me what you think. Get your votes in. Uh, let me have your calls and tweets. I apologise to those around the world for whom this story has little interest, but you have to know that the British remain very interested in the royal family, at least most of them. We have a guest uh, from the streets of France, a man who has been intimately involved in one whole year of struggle with the gilets jaunes, the yellow vests, whom, as I said earlier, you'd be forgiven for not having heard of here in Britain. I have never seen anything on any other mainstream media platform about the Yellow Vests. He is also our guest, 
uh, responsible for the Yellow Vest's work on the Julian Assange case. And these two issues are not separate issues. He's Emmerich Monville, and he comes to us from France, and I'm very grateful, Emmerich, uh, for that. Let's start with the, the scale of what has been 12 months, exactly, I think, is coming up. Act 53 is coming up. Uh, every single week mm -hmm. for an entire year, that's pretty, even by French standards, that's a big, big protest. Yes, it's a, it's a watershed. It's, it's completely t t new. I thought myself that France was uh, gone out of story, and I think now that uh, the French people, the revolution, revolutionary French people, uh, is back with a, with a vengeance. And uh, it's true that all these Saturdays uh, we might have the, the impression, like Chairman Mao said, that uh, a revolution is like a bicycle. If, it's, if it stops, it falls. But uh, I think they will rejoin, the, but, uh, there will be a, a rush of strikes in December. On December the 5th, it will be huge because it's already a renewable strike. And uh, I think when the, the Yellow Vest can converge, can, can go the same direction with the unions, it was something that was really difficult to, to, to make uh, this year. But uh, I think that uh, Macron will have to step down and we'll go, we have it did, to... Uh, it did happen once or twice that the CGT, for example, uh, came out in sympathy, but there was never uh, a dovetailing of organized labor with the, with the yellow vests. No, Is that because of mistakes made by the yellow vests or mistakes made by the labor unions? I think we have to, uh, it's not only a cliche, but you have to dis distinguish between, between the, the rank and file of the CGT and there's a, that direction. If, if, if a, a union works, there's no d division, but there is still a division because since uh, we are talking at the beginnings of the 80s uh, about social dialogue, we're, we, we are losing everything. Since, uh, since 1905, we have lost a lot of struggles in, in France because these unions have strong links with the European confederations uh, of unions, uh, and that, that's a, a, an enormous problem. That's why at the beginning, the leaders of the CGT were uh, talk, talking bad things about the, the, the Yellow Vest. Uh, of course, you can, when you have a, str uh, a strong movement, you can have some far-right activists that they, they uh, try to, to work within this movement. But it's not representative of the CLVS because it was really uh, 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 an uprising of the working class. And uh, they should have supported much, much before. But there was a, a big congress of the CGT, which is uh, uh, maybe all the British don't know that it's the, the most fighting uh, union in France. It has a, a strong link with the Communist Party when the Communist Party wanted to be communist, but it changed. But, uh, and they are capable to organize a general, uh, renewable, uh, interprofessional strike. And, but if you go to this field with a, a struggle with the capital and labor, it will help the Yellow Vest, it will help this, uh, this movement. Because when they started to, to block the old refineries, the roundabouts, there, there was a struggle. Uh, just making little demonstrations every Saturdays, it's, it's a show of force, it's very important. It's very important to create a consciousness, a political consciousness, but you have to, to have a showdown, a showdown with, uh, with, with Macron, with the, with the power. Currently. Now, uh, let's talk about the, the ontology of, uh, of the LFS, because if you tax someone here for their 
total disinterest in the Yellow Vest, they will say, well, they are, they are fascists, they are homophobes, they yeah. are misogynists, they are mm. the kind of, uh, in England, the English Defence League, the Tommy Robinson types. No, is that uh, true? Uh, to what extent is that true? Oh, no, I think you must say that the French people uh, hate fascism because fascism for, for us French is a product uh, from abroad. It was, uh, even in the 30s, we had the uh, popular front. Fascism came with the war. So you can have a, a far-right movement uh, very, very, very strong. Or uh, 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 the far-right... Far well, Mar uh, Ma Ma Marine Le Pen is uh, very strong. Yes, but she, she has to mince her, her words uh, in respect with, uh, with other parties. She has to adapt to, to a very republican uh, state of mind of the French. When they, they have this uh, uh, tricolor... Uh, flag. It means the, the unity of the, the, the Republican state. It means equality for all. That's, uh, that's very typic typically French. They, they hate this, uh, di divergence, these inequalities. They, they compare Macron with the with absolute monarchy. Uh, he is seen as a, 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 a new Bourbon. Yes, exactly. The, the difference with, with Britain is that we have an absolute monarchy. We have the Fifth Republic, which is a very Bonapartist-style uh, republic. With, uh, he has a parliament which, which is elected after the presidential election, and they always uh, uh, rubber stamp everything that the, the president is, uh, is making. And the, the, he was elected by Whisker at the first round with, with a lot of candidates, and he won everything. At the uh, second round, there was a far-right candidate, so uh, the majority of the French didn't want it and voted for him, but not on, uh, on this program. And they were very... Uh, it was a lot of anger because he didn't realise it. He didn't make any concessions to, 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 to this kind of thing. He, he, he applied this program, and that was... A, I would describe it as a, uh, an American-style, uh, new feudal uh, dystopia. And uh, uh, no, no one in France wants, wants this destruction of our, of, our, of our state, of the social services, because the French have a... It's, it's an old nation which uh, created a, a big state which protected the citizens. They, 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 they want to have a, 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 a state which protects us, but not a, a king like that, very arrogant, mm. Very, mm. very cynical. So uh, has it taken a significant toll on Macron's popularity, the yellow vests, every week, week after week? Yeah, yes, he, he, he cannot uh, apply his, pro his program. The, 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 the problem is Macron is, uh, it's not only because he, he, it's because he's arrogant, because he, he launched an, another campaign against the pensions, and in December there would be this rash of strikes against him. It's not only a strategical fault, because he risks a lot on this, uh, on this case, but it's because the European Union uh, imposes uh, this uh, kind of reforms. It's a European straight jacket. It's the yellow jacket against this straight jacket, the European straight jacket. And uh, uh, I think the, the, the only way that, uh, the yellow vests must understand, they must realize that all the, the revendications, all what they, the, their demands, cannot be applied within the framework of the European uh, Union. And Macron is uh, compelled to, to abide by the, the European So laws. it's Brexit. French exit from the EU on the agenda now. Oh yes, I think this is, this is the only solution. And exit, exit EU, exit uh, uh, Euro, exit uh, NATO, and exit capitalism, of course. Because all all is linked uh, together. Because uh, Macron cannot. He, he made uh, little concessions in the last December. 
But, but with the, the currency, you know, after 1968, you could give something and, and take it uh, anew with the inflation. But you, you cannot uh, play with the currency because that's a EU. Uh, that's a euro, mm. and uh, so 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 it, is, uh, it was designed. Uh, there's a, a neoliberal in in France. It's rare, but he spilt the bean. He, he said uh, Europe is designed to to avoid socialism in France because France is a revolutionary country. And uh, but the problem is because of these people who defend uh, Europe, they, they they don't have their hands free. They must obey, they're unable to make concessions. And because they are unable to make concessions, they, they will fail because the people angry, the people's anger is very high. And I, I must say, there's a lot of despair. Uh, last, uh, last week, there was a, a student, he set fire on, his, on himself. I saw that, yeah. It's like, like we were uh, South Korea. Mm. It's completely uh, unusual uh, in, in our political traditions. Uh, uh, you can see some uh, uh, in, in the schools. You have that. You have some in the hospitals. To, to, to a lot of despair, and uh, but but despair and anger and unconsciousness. And Is there consciousness. an alternative to Macron, though? I see none. I see no. A presidential candidate that can defeat him. Oh, uh, it's true that uh, we have to, to renew a new republic because uh, not very much more horizontal democracy with a reverse referendum or, or people's uh, initiative. That's one of the uh, strong demand of the the, ye the yellow vest. Uh, we have to. Uh, we must have a more more parliamentary uh, de democracy, and uh, which goes from 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 bottom to to, to the top. And uh, they're discussing a lot about it. It's, it's one year of, of political awareness. Uh, well, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, a university, uh, to be sure. Now, uh, they have not, the Yellow Vests, overlooked other issues that are not directly related, uh, but indirectly are very much related. And one of those is the Julian Assange case. Mm -hmm. Tell us how that is seen from France. Yes, uh, I wrote a book myself because I'm part of this uh, Yellow Vest group who's uh, very interested in the uh, Assange case. But uh, I, I must say that I, won't, I don't want to, to lecture the, the British about that because we have political prisoners in France too. But it's true that for the Assange case, is a journalist too. That's, uh, uh, that's very, very serious uh, Issue and we, we uh, I will be tomorrow at Westminster's Magistrates uh, Court. Uh, a lot of French, uh, with uh, the yellow vest French, uh, goes go there because we we want to know. For me, there's three scandals. There's the scandals that uh, the people uh, whose crime whose crime he denounced, he unmasked, are not in prison, but he he must uh, suffer for them. There's this, and within it, there is a scandal of the silence of the media, and. Third scandal, that's a lack of defense. And uh, we, we saw uh, even the, the, the lawyers, um, th there's a very good article in English. It was uh, Lucy Commissar, she's uh, an American uh, journalist. And she, she, she said that there is a conflict of interest, not only with the judge, but not. We, we all know that, I think, in England, that she, her husband is working with MI5 or MI6 uh, uh, ex-director. With the, with the lawyers, there are some lawyers who, the the Doughty Street Chambers, the Matrix Chambers, they are working in the um, broader Magnitsky story, and from the part from the side of the United States, and you know this broader Magnitsky story, I, I, I would call it a hoax because it serves it's a Cold War propaganda machine uh, against uh, against Russia uh, for, for for imperialism, and people who who, who think they can. 
defend Assange. I work in the same chamber with, with people who defend the, the, the USA, the interest of the, the American imperialism. Uh, and that's a problem. And that explains maybe why uh, you, they didn't lodge complaint of torture, because we all know that uh, there was a very good article of Craig Murray about him being tortured. But uh, I think it was a relief for me to, to read this article, because in English we, 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 we know things now. But he said, I was skeptical uh, with the UN reporter about a reporter uh, on torture, but okay, the, the, the UN uh, sent some uh, some some um, uh, uh, sent a, a, a report in the in the prison uh, since uh, 19 uh, 2016. The UN said that he must be freed. He's innocent. He must be freed, and uh, it, it's time the, the the British must recognize it because uh, now we, we can say who's next. Yes, who's next? Uh, indeed, uh, Emmerich. Thank you. Very much. Let me see your book. Uh, is it on sale now? Uh, yes, in France. It's uh, Julian Assange, en danger, en danger de mort. In... Well, I'm afraid that is the uh, long and the short of it. I hope uh, everyone in, has in a mortal good danger. Look at that. Julian is in mortal danger. He is in mortal danger. Thank you indeed, very much indeed, for uh, joining us. It was on this day in 1989 that riot police arrested hundreds of people taking part in the biggest show of public dissent in then Czechoslovakia for 20 years, the start of what became known as the Velvet Revolution. Throughout November, peaceful mass demonstrations and strikes gained momentum. Eventually, the Communist Party resigned and in December 1989 was replaced by a government composed mainly of non-communists. In 1993, the country split peacefully into two nations, the Czech Republic and Slovakia. Today, in 1997, 68 people were killed in an attack on a group of foreign tourists visiting a temple in southern Egypt. The tourist bus was fired on as they visited the temple. If that's how you say it, it's Hatshepsut, one of the main attractions in the town of Luxor. Six gunmen, part of a group affiliated to Al-Qaeda were killed in an ensuing two-hour gun battle with police. The symbolic attack came as 65 alleged members of the Islamist group went on trial in Cairo, accused of conspiracy to murder. The attack also decimated the Egyptian tourist industry, which hasn't fully recovered to this day. Spinning back a few years, uh, on this day in 1977, well, a few days Onwards, November 19th, the Egyptian leader Anwar Sadat became the first Arab leader to visit Israel. He was greeted by Israel's Prime Minister Menachem Begin. The visit led to the Camp David Agreement in 1979. However, Sadat was isolated and snubbed in the Arab world, and in October 1981, he was assassinated by his own soldiers at a military parade in Cairo. And going even further back, this was the week in 1945 that the trial of 20 Nazi war criminals started at Nuremberg. They included Hermann Göring, Albert Speer, and Admiral Karl Dönitz, who became German president after Hitler's death. Eleven of them were subsequently hanged. Others were given life sentences, whilst Göring committed suicide on the day before his execution by swallowing a cyanide pill. Good riddance to the lot of them.
That's what uh, I say. Have I got a call? One coming up. Uh, emails uh, here. Robert Chalmers says, the gilets jaunes I'm still in touch with are bewildered by the scarcity and when it is there, the tone of coverage of police actions over the last year. They keep asking me why, and I have to tell them. I can guess, but I don't know. Let's talk to Mike in South Carolina. Go ahead, Mike. Hi, George. Good to talk to you again. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Good to hear from you. Go on. Okay. I wanted to talk to you about the Trump impeachment follow-up on uh, uh, your interview with Chris Hedges, who mm. I have an immense amount of respect for. I think he's the best journalist operating now. Yeah, yeah, me too, States. yeah, yeah. So, uh, 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 you know, basically, uh, uh, he didn't want to commit to what would happen uh, in the Senate. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I can tell you what's going to happen in, in, in both the House and the Senate uh, when this goes forward. Uh, it, it, by the way, my... Lindsey Graham, who he talked about, is my senator from this state. Okay. You have my sympathies. <laughs> yes, yes, I understand. <laughs> but what's happening right now, okay, it took a long time to get here for this, for this actual uh, uh, impeachment inquiry in the House. And uh, uh, the, you know, what's basically happening here is that uh, they're bringing out all the evidence and showing it to the people in public so that they can see what actually he has done. And, and the Republicans are only doing uh, uh, obfuscation, uh, you know, trying to confuse the issue when they have their chances to uh, actually interview the witnesses. Mm -hmm. But there's no doubt, you know, what, what Trump has done is illegal. And, and the Republicans themselves, they cannot afford to lose Trump. They can't, because right now, all of their base, and they only have about 30%, and they are all Trump supporters. And so if uh, they were to actually uh, butt Trump, you know, go against him, they would lose all support for all of their other candidates when they run in this. So uh, you think election. they'll, they'll uh, hang on to him for fear of something worse? Uh, well, they absolutely will, because, well, I mean, Pence will replace him. He does represent, as Chris said, the uh, religious right. But that's not what they need right now. What they need is all of those Trump supporters uh, to go out to vote, or else they're done. Uh, as you know, in the midterm elections, they lost badly. They lost the House. Mm -hmm. That's what led to this impeachment uh, inquiry. Yeah. Now, it, the House may or may not uh, vote to actually impeach the president, uh, which means that it goes through trial in the Senate. Uh, if you remember back when uh, yeah. uh, Nixon yeah. had his troubles. Clinton, remember yeah. that, that big yeah. trial in the Senate? Well, they may not vote for that, because I think their main intention is to get all of this information out in front of the public. But if they do uh, vote for impeachment after these hearings are done, it will go to the Senate for trial in which the Republicans control the entire process. And what will happen there is you will not see a single, not a single Republican senator vote for his removal. Mm. So consequently, since it takes two-thirds vote, it can't, happen, yeah, it, it can't happen, yeah, it can't happen. But, but it, will, uh, it will dominate the, the presidential election campaign, won't it? It will, but, but the, the thing to remember is that the Republicans will be running uh, that trial in the Senate. Uh, you know, as, the, as the Democrats are running the impeachment hearings in the House. Yeah. So you will get a whole different perspective, and, and absolutely they will bring out the uh, corrupt Joe Biden and all of this stuff and his son. Do you, do you think, uh, yeah, do you think, Mike, that the American people give much of a toss about the Ukraine gate? Uh, 
I don't think it's, it's uh, you know, people are, are, are talking about it uh, uh, openly with each other. Of course, that's true about most of the, the government stuff that happens here, okay? Yeah. <laughs> Much less, you know, in your country. But, yeah. but you know, okay. what will happen is, is, is through these, these public hearings and all of this television coverage, which is happening live, uh, yeah. the American people will be and exposed. Are, are, are and are people watching? I mean, is, what are the ratings like? Yes, the, the people are watching. In fact, it's on uh, uh, regular over-the-air TV, not to mention all of the cable channels that you can get it on. Yeah. But, but uh, uh, yes, it's going, to, uh, it's going to have an effect. And, uh, but, but the Republicans are desperate now. They know that uh, if they lose any of their support for Trump, yeah. that they are totally done. The yeah, done. they're, uh, they're steeped, uh, steeped in blood so far. It's difficult to know whether it's yeah. to best to go on or our... Thank you very much, Mike, in... South Carolina, emails, George, Sir Galloway, glad to have a way to reach out since I don't use Twitter anymore. Just wanted to say how much I love you and the show. Always fighting the good fight and speaking out for those that have no voice. That's why I admire you. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Hork Lavin QC, which stands for quite controversial, says an interview with President Assad on moats uh, would be a scoop. In fact, that scoop has already been landed uh, by my colleague and friend Afsan Ratansi on Going Underground on RT. Uh, Chiris, Chiroso, Chisoro, beg your pardon, Chisoro Tendai. George, what's your take on the recent situation in Gaza? Where do you think things will go from here for the Palestinians and Israelis? Going nowhere uh, fast, going in the same way that they have for the last 70 years. I see no prospect of an Israel-Palestine settlement at all. Carl says, I was actually in Pizza Express the night Andrew was in. I had a picture taken with him, stood next to Elvis, Shergar, and Lord Lucan. And Dave says, ironic, you need the internet to get universal credit, but it's not a necessity to the Tories. And Tina Buckley said, I'm sorry, I can't get through to Moats, so I wanted to speak with you. Reference Corbyn's new free internet policy. Now, let's uh, talk about that for a minute. Um, the people, uh, the Tories, regarded it as communist, what was the phrase they use? A kind of madness, anyway. Uh, the idea that we should nationalize broadband and give it to people, every person in the country, for free. Now, a communist crackpot, that's what it was. Now, being neither a communist nor a crackpot myself, I wondered why I felt that actually this was a very good idea. Why should broadband be owned by private companies? Why should Richard Branson or Mark Zuckerberg or uh, any of the other plutocrats that are running these uh, mega corporations uh, in the media, internet-based uh, companies, why should they own uh, the airwaves? The country, the state, the people uh, should own these airwaves. I really don't get why people are upset about it. Then I began to get, once I said this, a bit of a backlash. People saying, well, we don't trust the state to control our access to the internet. But of course, the state already does. Uh, they can tell Richard Branson anytime 
to cut you off, and Richard Branson will cut you off. The idea that the private corporations are more of a guarantor of internet freedom than the elected government of the day in Britain would be is, I think, fanciful. But uh, let me know uh, what you think just after I uh, deal with the situation in uh, Venezuela, uh, because we have a special guest on the show uh, by Skype, Alejandra Casas, activist and internationalist on Bolivia. We should be on the line now. Alejandra, uh, tell us, please, yeah. what's happening, what's happening now, right now, on the streets of Bolivia. The army were shooting down supporters of Evo Morales just yesterday. Has that continued into today? Today appears to be quite peaceful. Um, there are no cars uh, in the street. Um, people are having to queue for hours for food. Um, uh, I just saw images right now of the army heading up to El Alto. El Alto is a city that has fiercely opposed the coup and they've organized themselves and they've blocked um, almost every other corner. They've blocked it. They've blocked all the access to La Paz. Now, there might be still one access to La Paz to the city. They've, um, they've also blocked the distributor of, of uh, gasoline which is why there are the reason. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM. So why there's no cars in La Paz moving around. Um, a teleferico, which is the cable cars, appears to be working. Um, and as I was saying, I just saw some images of the army heading up to El Alto. So we're a bit worried about what could happen up, uh, up in El Alto. Um, and this afternoon. What was this all about, please? Tell us what you think was the reason for the overthrow of the extremely popular and beloved, actually, President Morales. Oh, what's the reason? It's, uh, I think everybody's trying to understand that at the moment. Um, it's definitely a well-planned, organized and financed coup. Um, the reasons for for it, I can. The reasons for for the coup, I think, come from. The, you can look at who the who the leaders of the coup are, and what their interests are, and um, I think there was a deep hatred, possibly for uh, growing, uh, towards the president, towards um, his his. Uh, well, the indigenous movement, their empowerment over the years. Uh, and I think there was a resentment in the middle class and the, the, the better off classes. Um, looking at the leaders of the coup, we've got Luis Fernando Camacho, and he comes from Santa Cruz. Santa Cruz is a 
the most um, economically well-off region of, of Bolivia. Um, and himself, his family were owners or are owners of um, gas. And in 2006, Evo Morales nationalized the resources. So we know there that that uh, Fernando Camacho, he his family business was nationalized by the government, so he lost out there in his private finance. Um, we also know that Santa Cruz has always been um, has always been quite racist and. In 2008, there was a movement to split the country so that they would be their own independent and they wouldn't have to share the country with Indians. I don't know if this many seems people to be, know about uh, This seems to be a theme, doesn't it? This uh, usurper who is now masquerading as the president. Uh, she talked about uh, the Indians, their religion, their symbols and so on, that there was no place, she said, for the devil for Satan uh, in, uh, in Bolivia. They should go up to the mountains and stay there. This seems to imply an ethno-religious uh, supremacist uh, angle or dimension to all of this. Is that how you see it? Definitely, definitely. Um, the movements also that Luis Fernando Camacho comes from, um, Unión Juvenil Cruceñista, uh, is all it's, it's a paramilitary group. Um, it's not known as that in Bolivia, but other uh, human rights organizations have classified it as a paramilitary group, and they're very fundamentalist and they use the the Bible and Christ and religion um, to motivate their their followers to to as an ideology. They're fundamentalists, and yes. Um, it's something that has made many people angry here in, in Bolivia. The fact that when the coup happened, they immediately removed the Wipala flag. The Wipala flag is a um, multicolored flag, which represents the indigenous communities. Um, and that flag is, it, it, you don't just use it in Bolivia. That flag is also seen in Colombia, in Peru, in Chile. It could because it represents the indigenous communities. Um, and with the government, under his government, he's made it a national sin. Now, uh, what's, what's going to happen next, if you're able to speculate about that? They, they said they were going to have new elections, uh, but that uh, President uh, Morales cannot contest them, even though he won the uh, last one by a clear 10 points. Um, and in fact, they've said that they will arrest Evo, if he comes back to Bolivia. Uh, do you expect them to have these elections? And if so, how meaningful would they be if the president was not allowed to contest them? Well, that, that's something that we have to see. I think they have to have elections. Uh, they're trying their very best so that, yes, Evo Morales doesn't participate, and also they don't want the party to participate. There is a massive media campaign to criminalize the mass party and their sympathizers. Um, they call them vandals and criminals because they're, they're deciding to block the country, well, block access to the cities. Um, and it's their protest, isn't it?
but the media is just calling them vandals and criminals and they shouldn't be allowed to participate in the next elections. Uh, so that that's what the fight is going to be. The fight is going to be to be allowed to participate in the elections. And also uh, the mass has to decide if, if Evo Morales if Evo Morales is going to be their, their candidate or if it's going to be somebody else. Uh, that's not quite clear. The opposition have made it clear they do not want Evo Morales because they know he will win. Again, I think I see potential for more violence and, and more repression um, in the future. Me too. Uh, stay safe. Thank you very much indeed. Alejandra Casas uh, on the line there from Bolivia. On the line from Cheshire is Wayne. Let's hear from him. Go ahead, Wayne. Hi, George. Hi. Um, I was a bit concerned, um, and I think it was incorrect for you to say that um, Prince Andrew, if you were an advisor, that you would have advised him not to do the interview. Yeah. And it's a not shame much chance also. of me being his advisor, of course, but if, I, if he'd asked me, I would have said, you're making a huge mistake. Yeah, well, w what I'm trying to get at is, is I'm sick to death of these advisors advising people in the public eye to what they should and shouldn't say. I think it's a massive problem to democracy. It's, I'm, I'm losing trust because as soon as anyone says, says anything on the news, am I thinking, right, what have their advisors said? So I think advisors should be called out. The question is, and don't take this the wrong way, have you been advised what you can and can't say tonight, George? <laughs> you obviously don't know me. Who could advise <laughs> me? Who could advise me on what I can and can't say? <laughs> don't be, is, is, don't is, be soft, lad. Nobody's ever advised me what I can and can't say, and nobody ever will. That's good. Be sure about well, that. Anyway, have you got a, a better point to make? Go on. Well, that, that, is, that is the whole point. Uh, the BBC News and Sky News have all agreed with what you said, that he shouldn't have done the interview. Uh -huh. But let's just sit, let's just so sit do you back think and think he, about it. So do you think it. he should have done it, Wayne? No, I think the problem is, is the advisors. That's what I'm trying to get at. How can we trust anyone saying anything when we know they've all got advisors and telling them what they should? Well, uh, people, advise, truth, uh, people advise people all the time, but uh, the people saying it are responsible for what they say. Um, Andrew is responsible for what he said last night, not what anyone uh, else might have advised them. I disagree with that. I think, he's, I think all the world family are controlled what they can and can't say, what they can and can't do. Controlled by whom? Control, I, I, oh, I don't honestly know, controlled by people above them. Who's organisations? Who's above them? Which what, to, what are you which, driving which at? To keep, are we in shape-shifting lizard territory? Oh, here? no, no, don't go down that road. Well, who, the, who, the, the who above them? The in 1952. Who above oh, the royal family are telling them what to say and do? Uh, in my opinion, Freemasons, 33 degrees of Malta. That's in my opinion. Uh, OK, thanks very much. Let's go to Amanda in London. Go ahead, Amanda. Oh, hello. Good evening, Mr Galloway. Good evening to you, ma'am. Um, I just wanted to raise um, uh, something that I thought was quite strange when I was listening to Kirsty Walk interviewing um, Kate, uh, um, Miss Maitlis, on Friday evening before the um, interview took oh, place yeah. with Prince Charles. I didn't Charles see that. I didn't see well, that. It was just, I just saw a snippet of it 
And the thing that I thought was very strange was that apparently the negotiations for the interview had been going on for six months. Now, Epstein was first arrested on the 6th of July. He died in August. Why would this negotiation need to take place six months before, which sort of seems to have coincided with Prince Charles's, sorry, Prince Andrew's last conversation with Ghislaine Maxwell in May of um, 2019. Yeah, maybe she's the one that advised them he should go on television. Well, possibly, or possibly they knew, or perhaps possibly they had some poor knowledge of the arrest that took place in July, and they were trying to put forward some sort of PR uh, coverage for what they'd been up to. Yeah, well, it hasn't worked, has it? I mean, the story isn't going to go away, it's going to run and run, and now, exactly. uh, I think it's now he's damaged, very damaged goods. I think it's going to get worse and worse for them. And I think that's probably the, the best thing to have happened because this new thing needs to come out into the open. Yes, um, um, it's all a bit puzzling. Uh, it's puzzling on two levels. Why did any of it come out at all? And if it was going to come out, why hasn't all of it come out? Um, you know, ar arresting Epstein was quite surprising to me because it ran the risk of him blowing the whistle on uh, a hugely important segment of the American elite, not just the American elite. But having uh, arrested him, uh, it seems to me that they panicked and wanted him dead very quickly, don't you? Well, I, I, I think something seems to have backfired. I just wonder if Epstein was somebody they had to, it was better to get rid of him because worse and worse stuff was behind it. But um, certainly, I can't understand why it would be taking six months with Newsnight to negotiate the interview with Prince Andrew when the arrest took place about four months ago. Yeah, although the arrest is not the only thing in the uh, proposed interview, because we already knew before the arrest uh, what uh, Andrew's relationship with Epstein was. Exactly, but uh, particularly in 2015, but that had died a death. To a great extent, I think they thought yeah. because Prince Andrew in June was standing on the balcony at the choosing of the colour with the Queen, yeah. he was taking Donald Trump to Westminster Abbey, and he was very much coming to the forefront again. And yeah, uh, then, of course, this right, happened yeah. in July. I, I think you'll have to be retired now, don't you? Uh, I think so. I think I heard, I heard that that was being suggested that the, the whole royal family needs to be slimmed down if it's going to be taken any further forward. Stay away from Pizza Express if you want to slim down. Uh, thank you, Amanda, for that lovely call. Uh, onair at ggmoats.com is the email address. Onair at ggmoats.com. Lots and lots of emails, I must say. Uh, 3,295 votes were cast. 5% of you thought Andrew was believable. 95% of you thought uh, that he was not. The cleverest man in England has some questions to answer so far as many of the listeners and viewers are uh, concerned. There's also another poll up. Are you now more or less likely to eat at a Pizza Express? Vote now, more likely or less likely. <laughs> Highly likely. Do you think likely. this is all done, Pizza Express? Some good? They were in a bit of trouble. Uh, does the you know, pa the, the patronage of His Royal Highness, 
do them any good, do you think? Well, I think that the only people or organization, as it were, to come out of this well is Pizza Express. The royal family, the BBC, the American judicial system, uh, society at large all came out much worse for this interview. But Pizza Express, which was going into administration, talking about closing over half of their locations, now they're in the news. And, and quite uniquely in this whole saga, they're blameless. They didn't do anything wrong except serve pizza, allegedly, to a very important person. So there's no such thing as bad publicity, but in the case of Pizza Express, they've really boxed this one up. Uh, yeah, I suspect uh, that you're right. Will Carpenter says more will come out <clears> in the wash. <throat> and I believe Andrew and Chums have made a lot of dirty laundry, metaphorical and literal. It is a remarkable thing that this story has multiplied, has become such a big story. When, uh, you know, in the beginning, when I was uh, banging on about it on here, not many people in Britain had heard anything about it. No. Uh, and now it's dominating the airwaves, dominating the front pages. Is that because people are already bored by the general election, do you think? I think that's one of the reasons. And I think the timing of the BBC to drop this sort of political, because after all, it is political, whether we want it to be or not. I don't, and I don't want it to be. I think the timing was very suspect, to say, to put it mildly. And I think that it was very crude and very vulgar at its worst. But uh, the BBC pretends not to be a business because we have to pay for it under penalty of imprisonment. But it is a business just with a shotgun-style subsidy. And as such, they know that sex in its various forms sells. And this one really sold, not only because I think the story would have always got people talking one way or the other, but I really think there is election fatigue. It's becoming increasingly clear that if the election were held tomorrow, as opposed to the 12th of December, the final vote wouldn't change at all. People have made up their minds. This election frankly, has been going on since June of 2016, and everyone just wants it over with. Well, let's review uh, the, uh, the scene, uh, the election uh, scene. The uh, opinion polls uh, are now showing a, a, a stretching lead for uh, Boris Johnson. If you take them across uh, an average, Labour's on roughly 30%. The Conservatives are on 40% or more, and today's paper's 45%, which is a very high number, yeah. I must say. If that were to be sustained uh, with the Brexit party falling not just into single figures, but into UKIP territory, <laughs> uh, then Boris Johnson would have a simply enormous majority, a three-figure majority of the kind that we thought we wouldn't see the likes of again. On the other hand, Labour has its manifesto uh, to come out. They're talking it up. It's likely to have a lot of uh, radical and, uh, and interesting uh, elements uh, to it. The right will attack it as big spend, um, reckless economics and so on. The left will try and uh, bring forward enough electoral incentives to different sections of their potential constituency to get them to vote, so that, for example, free broadband uh, on a nationalised spectrum uh, is uh, likely to be welcomed by, by young people and by well, people under the age of 50, although there's lots of people over 50 using the internet. There's the dental uh, promise, 
that now your first visit to the dentist will be paid for on the NHS because it is, uh, has been well attested that people are no longer, many people are no longer going to the dentist because of the cost of it. And therefore, if they ever do have to go, the cost is going to be very much greater. So Labour's preparing its election manifesto launch. The Conservatives and their press are running a full-scale bombardment of Corbyn and his friends and his historical positions. Um, so far, according to the polls, the Tories are winning comfortably. What's your view? I think that it's more or less always been Boris Johnson's election to lose for a number of reasons. This election is going to be less about policy than just about any election since 2001, which was just Blair's victory lap, which wasn't very hard when you're running around the bald scalp of, uh, of William Hague with or without one of those silly hats that he wore on the log ride. Backwards. But, well, indeed. But, well, that election was... It took place at a rather placid time. Uh, this is anything but placid. It's a political disaster on the verge of a global economic disaster. And frankly, I think there's a big social disaster coming too because the cohesion of society that was tottering ever since the end of the Cold War is about to go off the edge in a big way. Not soon, but sooner than a lot of uh, more mild-minded people would like. Even here? Even in mild-mannered Britain? I think so. Obviously, not as bad as in France, not as bad as in heavily armed America, not as bad as in other parts of Europe like Germany, where Merkel has made a mess of things. But I think unless there is someone or something that comes around to say, we've got to get back to cohesion, we've got to get back to mild-mannered, there's hysteria in the air. And if some countries are prone for it, Britain's frankly embarrassing when it becomes hysterical, because Britain doesn't do hysterical well and the only thing worse than doing a bad thing good is doing a bad thing terribly so all of these things are the the storm clouds gathering on the horizon but back to the election I think it's Boris's to lose because the Brexit issue is going to define the next 20 years at least of this country and I don't think within five years the issue will even be settled in terms of the mechanics of it the trade deals that are going to be necessary are going to take a lot longer than people thought, not because they need to, but because of the hopeless incompetence that has grown up around Brexit since 2016. Because the issue is big, I think that Boris is going to win because he's cloaked himself in Brexit. He knows that he needs to make some form of Brexit happen to retain this mandate that I think he's going to get. And the other parties are essentially just spinning round in circles, trying to do something thing to stop the Boris train from accelerating, but I don't think they're having much well, luck. Professor Sir John Curtis uh, said yesterday that the chances of Labour winning the election are zero or close to zero, but that that's not what this election is about. This election is about whether we'll have a Tory majority government or a hung parliament. Yes. Uh, whether, therefore, we will Brexit or whether we're right back into another... 12 months, maybe more, oh, no. of uh, endless uh, agony over uh, Brexit. So, in a way, according to Professor Curtis, the possibility of a Jeremy Corbyn victory as the Prime Minister of a majority Labour government is virtually zero. And I think 
the facts uh, so far, things can change, uh, seem to uh, buttress that. But I'll, are you ruling out uh, a hung parliament? Oh, no. It's, it's very much possible, but I don't think it's very probable. It's one of the only two possible outcomes. And in that sense, I agree uh, with Professor Curtis. I think that as the election goes on, the, the following would need to happen to increase the probability of a hung parliament. One, the Tories would need to put their feet even worse than they've been putting them because the Tory campaign has been atrocious. It's been dreadful. It's not been any better than Theresa May's. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's even worse in some ways than Theresa May because with Theresa May, she, she helped people lower their expectations and she delivered. With Boris, people were expecting to be hang, dangling from a high wire, waving the union flag, but it's essentially just been a series of shambolic visits. It's as though someone in Tory party headquarters is saying, where can we send Boris where he's going to get heckled by someone? Well, if we make it here by five, we can make it here by seven, get a good bit of heckling in by nine and so it would need if it's this bad the Tory campaign and the Conservatives are still doing so well in the polls it's going to need to take something far bigger than the various assets of Miss Alcuri to derail this well, train. Well you mentioned I was about to ask you about her mm. the the, the <clears throat> woman scorned tour. Yes. Uh, she I don't know what she has what material she's got um, but it was pretty unmistakable what she said today. She said to Boris Johnson, you've treated me like a, a wet rag, you've wrung me out, you're uh, treating me like a one-night stand. We were, uh, I was your advisor on technology matters for four years, and now you don't want to know me, you're hanging up the phone, and so on. These are quite dangerous currents, don't you think? Yes and no. I mean, Harold Macmillan was famous for building council houses, and I think Boris Johnson is already developing a reputation for erecting the Heartbreak Hotel. Um, so I think that beyond that, um, it's not going to come to much. It's going to be a topic of scandal, but it sort of pales in comparison to the whole Epstein matter, because at this point, and I don't take any pleasure in saying this as a social conservative, a, an extinct ideology, but let's keep a few dinosaurs like me around here in Jurassic Park while we can. Uh, in, 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 in an era, for example, as recently as the 60s, Profumo did a lot less, but was chastised a lot more. It brought down a government where today, whenever some sort of sexual scandal comes up, people just cross their fingers and say, please don't let it be children or animals. Please don't let it be children or animals. And so I think that that's what people will so you see. Think, uh, just uh, water off his back. I'll put it this way. If she were going around tour uh, selling a book or selling a story, which I presume is what she's about to do, and it had the words Epstein in the title of the event, she'd sell more tickets. I'll put it that way. Yeah. Let's hear from uh, PG in North London on the general election. PG, welcome. Hello, George. How are you? I'm good, thank you. George, firstly, it's a pleasure to talk to you. My father was a big fan of yours. He's not around anymore, but uh, it's really nice for me to be able to, um, to, t to ask you a question and thank also uh, to have some input from Adam as well. Now, yeah. there's a lot being said about MPs not representing the people. Now... What doesn't sit well with me is you have people who are selected to be MPs in constituencies 
that they have no track record or no knowledge of. For example, I saw Luciana Berger. She was an MP for Wavertree in Liverpool. So suddenly she has abandoned all of her constituents, and now she's fighting for Finchley and Golders Green. Another point, George, is, for example, if you're looking to fight for the seat of West Bromwich, what do you have in common with the local people in West Bromwich? Do you know much about uh, doctors' waiting times? Do you know how many planning applications were received? Do you know um, whether the traffic junctions are working or not? I really feel that putting people just because a seat is a safe seat is not the right thing to do. I think MPs should only represent or fight for an election if they are born in a constituency. And uh, maybe uh, that would be, Yeah, that would be terribly parochial, uh, yes. I think. Uh, I should tell you that I announced uh, a couple of weeks ago I have a self-denying ordinance on discussing my own election campaign in West Bromwich East, so I won't be answering your questions except to say that I'll be speaking on Friday evening at 7 o'clock in the Working Men's Club in Dudley Road in West Bromwich, just around from the clock tower, and uh, I'll be uh, addressing... Uh, any points that anyone has, including the ones that you have raised uh, here. Uh, the idea that one should only uh, stand for election in a place that you were born uh, would, of course, have changed the history of uh, the entirety of, uh, of British politics. Jeremy Corbyn was not born in Islington. Uh, Boris Johnson was not born in Uxbridge. Uh, and uh, he was born in New York City. He was born in New York City, so he'd be running in uh, in the U.S. No, I, I really don't think that is the point. I don't think an MP is a councillor. Mm. I don't think an MP is hired by the electorate only for uh, their familiarity with the pavements and the potholes, but to opine on, make judgments on, and make progress on the great national and international issues uh, that the country faces. That's my view. Let's hear Adams. Well, you don't need a hole in your head to know that you would want a doctor capable of mending that ailment should it occur. And so this whole parochial notion of localism, of devolution, all of things which I totally and 100% oppose, I think, needs to go out the window. This country should return to being a fully unitary country where people who are elected members of parliament are elected because of their character, because of their ability, because of their intellect, because of their their track record because of their ethics rather than about the fact that they're mates with the publican in Birmingham or that they went to school with the miller in, uh, in East Yorkshire. And when you look at the history of some of the greatest parliamentarians that achieved the most for constituents at a constituency level, these are frequently people that had no kind of affinity 
and no kind of historic connection with the constituency, but they got the job done, they did the work, they had the ability. So this sort of parochial, it's almost political and constitutional Luddism, which in many ways is the logical conclusion of all of this dev devolution nonsense, because if we turn every little town into a political ghetto, it shuts the people there out from the opportunity of having the best possible MP they could have, and it also restricts clever MPs to the places they're born, whichever region of the country that happens to be. Sorry, PG, no takers for your uh, thesis uh, here tonight, I'm afraid. Let's hear from the lovely Tina, a legend in Shepherd's Bush. Go ahead, Tina. Hi, George. Good evening. Great show. Um, I just want to take an issue with Adam yesterday. He, <laughs> he doesn't like Corbyn's new policies of free internet for all. And oh. um, he's, he's called it a crackpot idea. And we had a bit, bit of a back and forth yesterday on Twitter. And I just wanted to carry it on because that's my Twitter <laughs> jam. <laughs> so, what's Well, tell me, tell me, uh, tell me first, and then Adam will uh, no doubt respond. Uh, right. Why okay. you think so, this is such a great policy? How many votes do you think are in it? Well, a poll yesterday said 70% really want this. Uh, and they really think this is a great policy. Why I think it's a great policy, there's many people in this country who still aren't connected to the internet, George. And these days, the internet is a necessity. It's not a luxury, as Adam described it. And many people have to use it to, to apply for jobs if they're unemployed. If you want to apply for universal credit, you have to have the internet to go through the 50-page forms, etc., etc. And I just think it's a really, really outdated and pompous thing to say that it's, it's a luxury, not a necessity. Well, whether it's a necessity or not, Adam, uh, is obviously debatable. It's a good thing. The internet is a good thing. I'm not so sure. I used to think it was, but I see it in increasingly as something that's atomizing society, that's stupefying society. It's essentially becoming the Soma, the Huxleyan Soma of this epoch. And people are frequent, people who fear a dystopian future, and I'm certainly one of them, are frequently asked, who got the prediction better? Was it Orwell with 1984 or was it Huxley with Brave New World? And most people, for at least the last 20 years who have looked at this objectively, think that Huxley got it right. People are stupefying themselves so much so that they're voluntarily putting the chains on them. So there's no need for the two minutes of hate. There's no need for the brainwashing. People are doing it themselves. And the internet is, it's a kind of psychological narcotic. It cuts people out from the real world. It allows gangs of ideologues to essentially engage in, in sub-intellectual onanism, to borrow a word from Bojo, not that he or I would know anything about that. It allows them to engage in these activities. And I think that it's bad for politics, it's bad for education, it's bad for the family. It's good for some things. Well, but, but nobody I, would be watching or listening to us now. It's an exception. It's a the, noble uh, exception, indeed. A noble uh, exception. And uh, our History Boys series would never have Another. had the people were talking to me about it in Pakistan mm. over the weekend. They love it there, uh, the history boys. I mean, it allows us to get our point of view across, Tina, to 
get her point of view across in a way that would never be possible uh, if we were reliant on the big media houses and their multi-billion dollar investments in media empires. Well, those were the summer of those days. I'm not in any more favor of that than I am of the internet. And where I think the internet is maybe 75% negative and the rest positive, the old media is probably 90%, if not more, negative. So I take a fairly grim outlook on all of these things. And I think that one good thing about this election that I think might vindicate this thesis is that this election is not going to be won or lost on Twitter. It's not going to be won or lost in the mainstream media. It's not going to be won and lost on Fleet Street. It's going to be won and lost in the street, in working men's clubs, in pubs, in charitable uh, houses, in religious institutions, in the family sitting room, what's left of it. People have had enough because they realize that there's pig's will from the mainstream media, pig's will from the summer internet, pig's will from Fleet Street, and I think people are going to make up their own minds with a little help of the few bright sparks in the internet and the even fewer bright sparks in the in the 20 20th century media, let's call it that. But I think one th important thing about this election is that the human spirit, where emotion is able to lead people to a rational decision, where even without all of the details and without being able to necessarily articulate the ones that are there, this spirit of a human condition which refuses to die so quietly, the Winston Smith condition, we can call it to go back to Orwell, I think the election will prove that one way or another at a constituency by constituency level, more importantly than even the overall outcome. Yeah, I, I certainly agree with you that the national opinion polls are much less important than what the uh, state of play is in the regions, in the towns, in the cities. Yeah. There it's very much uh, uh, less good for Tina, I'm afraid. Uh, Tina, uh, if you're still there, last uh, word to you. No, we've lost her. Now, uh, you can vote on my Twitter page, at George Galloway. It's still being misspelt on my screen here. I have no <laughs> idea who can't spell the word George. Uh, anyway, uh, on my Twitter page, at George Galloway, tell me if you are more or less likely to eat at Pizza Express. Now that you know, you might bump into uh, <laughs> Prince Andrew there. I saw a brilliant meme on uh, Twitter, uh, which uh, was uh, a street name. Prince Andrew's Close, which is not so much a street name as a warning. George, I love the show. I'm confused by the appearance of popularity of the SNP, Remain, and independence in Scotland. Whenever I talk to my family and friends back in Scotland, they are all in on Brexit and somewhat disgusted and ashamed of Nicola Sturgeon. Uh, this is from Nick, who is a Scot living in Los Angeles. Um, let's talk about Scotland. Um, the SNP are on track to win a huge number of seats. The Tories uh, to lose some, perhaps not as many as originally feared. But Labour in Scotland has reached an historic low point that it makes me have to pinch myself to realise it's real. When I was the chairman of the whole Labour Party in Scotland, Labour ran everything in Scotland. And now they're at 9% in the opinion polls, behind the Tories on double that, way, way, way behind the SNP. 
Do you think that we're on a motorway with no exit ramp uh, towards uh, independence? Well, Red Clyde's side is turning the same ginger hue as Mrs Sturgeon's hair, it does seem. I think that the SNP vote during this election could be interpreted in one of two ways. And even though they seem contradictory, I'm not so certain in the long term that they are. On the one hand, it's the lost gasp of Scottish voters saying that we don't like Brexit, we don't like the kinds of people on the Conservative front bench, we don't like the kind of muddled atmosphere of Labour, and we want to assert ourselves with an opinion that is unique, that runs contrary to everything south of the border, whether it's Labour or Labour's front bench, the Conservatives' front bench, or Brexit itself. On the other hand, I think that the horrible way in which Theresa May's regime, sorry, government, uh, managed the Brexit process might be telling a lot of people subliminally in Scotland, including SNP voters, these referenda, these independence movements, these exiting of unions, it's not quite as smooth sailing as people think. Now, don't get me wrong, I think Brexit could have been very smooth comparatively from the beginning if managed by people with brains. Unfortunately, such people weren't available, and when they were, they weren't in power. But the, the bad taste is sitting there in people's mouths. Questions about currency, questions about borders, hard, soft, questions about fishing. And so I think a lot of these people will think, let's support the SNP so they give a good bloody nose to what is probably going to be a continued uh, prime ministership of Boris Johnson, but let's not take it too far. And for the SNP leadership themselves, being uh, pragmatists that speak the language of fanatical ideology, I'm not sure they're all too bothered about that. They can be a protest vote, but one with power, just without the kind of responsibility of forming one's own separatist yeah. nation. Uh, good point, good point. Um, now... Uh... Yeah, we've got a nice image of uh, Prince Andrew in, uh, in Pizza Express. Let's show that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> there they are, and all of them are walking. That's Lee Harvey Oswald, O.J. Simpson, and uh, Prince Andrew and the aforementioned young American girl. I don't, can't see the rest. Anyway, thank you for that. Uh, Ian is on the line in Hounslow. Always worth hearing. Ian, welcome back. Hello, George. And nice um, I've got Go a bone to pick of Adam, really, uh, over his comment on parochialism and being uh, local Luddites insisting on the, your local MP representing the local people who actually elected them. Go on then, fire away. Uh, we've, we've got them there, swanning around in the House of Commons, saying they're voting according to their conscience, which is a, a misnomer for self-interest. We've got MPs defecting to parties that they weren't originally elected to represent. We've got MPs from constituencies voting to remain when their constituencies largely voted to leave the European oh, 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 Union. Ian, We've got people that, who don't live locally. Well, Ian, all people, of that is true. Yeah. All of that is true. But what does it have to do with the idea that you should only be able to stand for Parliament in the place that you were born? You think oh, that I will solve that? No, I think that's, that's, that's a little extreme. But the man's point was the disconnect between the people who put people into Parliament and those people who go to Parliament who no longer represent the people who voted for them, sure. apart from themselves, with their snouts in the trough, I think claiming expenses claims... We all agree claims, with that, Ian. Adam agrees with that. I agree with that. 
You agree um, with that. We, as far as I'm concerned, I would have voted out 99% of the membership of the current House of Commons. I might even have gone to the 100. <laughs> but I certainly could, would have been in the high 90s. Can I just lastly, for ring off, I'd like to put five questions at Tony Benn. Uh, do you remember the five questions that Tony Benn will put to any politician? Yes. yes, go on. What power have you got? Where did you get it from? In whose interest do you exercise it? To whom are you accountable? And how can we get rid of you? And they're not answering those questions. No, I agree. The political class is not just venal, but shrunken. Uh, venal uh, demonstrated amply over the last three years of deliberate wreckage of the Brexit decision, uh, but uh, also shrunk. Um, I make no bones about this. When I entered Parliament over 30 years ago, it was a much bigger place than it currently is now. Uh, we have a political class that, when we needed it most, when this existential question of Brexit came along, was so bad you wouldn't send them out for a loaf of bread. You wouldn't buy a second-hand car from them. You'd lock up your daughters uh, if they were coming down the road uh, canvassing. Uh, we, have a, we have a shockingly bad political class, but that's not going to be solved uh, by becoming parochial. That was the point that uh, Adam was making. Adam. Yes, absolutely right. And, for example, I call the Labour front bench the Islington Mafia. I call them that because Islington is no longer just a spot on the map of London, but it's also an ideology. Secondly, I call them that because it's fun. But to get serious about it, not everyone in Islington is Emily Thornbury or Jeremy Corbyn. There are people in Islington who, unlike them, have it quite hard. And there are even people in Islington who voted for Brexit shock, but there are a few of them. And so to say that someone who shares a common geography, an accident of birth, is somehow uniquely qualified, and yet someone from even slightly down the road should be prohibited from putting forward proposals and ideas and uh, concepts of representation for a certain area, it's as ludicrous as saying, I want a white brain surgeon rather than a black brain surgeon, irrespective of their qualifications. It's the same principal concept. I reject it all. Yes, uh, me too. Uh, Peter is in Australia. Let's hear from him. Go ahead, Peter. Hello, George. How are you? I'm great. Uh, thanks very much for the call. What time is it in Australia now? It is about 20 to 9. Oh, okay. Not too in bad. Morning. In the in morning. morning. Yeah, go ahead, sir. Now, 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 George, what I'd like to do is raise an issue. I've been thinking about you and Chris Williamson because I both as a measure of solidarity, uh, would wish you both to be returned to the next parliament. Mm. And the thing that occurred to me is there's two aspects of the Australian political system which would be of great use when it comes to uh, your campaigns. Now, that would be we have compulsory voting and we have preferential voting. Preferential voting would mean that the progressive um, voters in both those constituencies would have the ability to vote to, to, to not give in to this notion that there would be a wasted vote. So someone could um, vote for Chris, um, and if he came last, then, of course, his vote, the second preference would then stand, so they would vote for a Labor Party candidate. I would love to see, in the next parliament, a progressive 
progressive members start a debate about preferential voting and also compulsory voting. Which yeah, let, well. let me ask you about the compulsory uh, voting. That uh, obviously drives the turnout up to the, the maximum. But is there no feeling amongst people that this is a draconian, even tyrannical use of state power to actually force you to go and vote for one or other of them? But, but George, you don't actually have to vote. You, you, you have to come and get your name marked off. If you don't wish to vote, you can say, bugger off to all of them on your ballot paper. You can do mm -hmm. anything you want with your ballot paper, but it forces people to come along and at least engage in the political process. And it means a huge amount of money, for example, in the United States, that, that has to be targeted to people who are alienated from the system to get them engaged um, can actually be directed more effectively in trying to persuade the, to persuade the middle ground to more progressive politics. Good um, points, the, good there, points, there a, uh, Peter. A, yeah, go on. Th th there's a reason why the Australian Labor Party, um, one of the oldest Labor parties, one of the later, oldest Labor Party in the world, was, was so insistent upon compulsory voting at the beginning of the last century. And I have no doubt he's in a relatively conservative country. I have no doubt that that combined with preferential voting has meant that um, uh, far more progressive governments than otherwise would have been the case have been elected in Australia. And there's a reason why conservatives in Australia want to get rid of both of them, but thus far the people have been sufficiently attracted to um, protecting those two aspects of our system to ensure that, that the Tory forces and forces of reaction in Australia have not been able to get rid of those two aspects of our system. Great call, uh, Peter. Thank you very much indeed for it. Adam, if there is a hung parliament, one upside of that would be, for me, uh, that it would be bound to increase discussion and perhaps resolution uh, on the need to reform our voting system. Uh, a first-past-the-post voting system can mean, has meant, uh, that, uh, for example, uh, UKIP get four million votes in the past, not a single member of parliament. Uh, someone gets nine million votes and gets hundreds of members of parliament. The correlation between the number of votes you get and the number of seats you get is so wildly skewed. Indeed, and the current system that we've got of one constituent, sorry, one, uh, one candidate per constituency is really only since the late 1940s when the final multi-member constituencies were abolished by the Attlee government. Before that, there were various kinds of multi-member constituencies, um, and I think it worked quite well. There's some very bad forms of proportional representation, and there's some very good forms. There's hybrid models, like in Singapore, where you've got some party this proportional representation and some uh, single seat constituencies. Uh, so I think some sort of combination might be necessary and quite possibly advisable. And there's no doubt about it, if there is a hung parliament, which given the Brexit issue won't end in any more prettier fashion than the last parliament, which wasn't even, uh, well, excuse me, it was elected as a hung parliament, then it's sort of governed as a Tory majority with a DUP tail, which attempted to wag the dog, but Boris got the last laugh there. But if there's a formal hung parliament where a, a Labour plurality is reliant on the Scottish nationalists and the Liberal party to rule, I think it's inevitable that this discussion will come out.
Yeah, uh, there could uh, very well be trouble over that. Are yeah. you more or less likely to eat at Pizza Express? More likely, 38%. So some people quite like to sit down for their pepperoni next to Prince Andrew. <laughs> uh, and less likely is 62. Just eight minutes left on that poll. So vote now on my uh, Twitter page. Hi, George. Loving the show, as always. I do not understand why Prince Andrew did not just admit it. It's not ideal, I suppose, a 40-year-old royal having sex with a 17-year-old. But at the end of the day, she was not underage, at least in this country. Andrew was single and not with Fergie. People would not have liked it, but it would have been forgotten soon enough. Bill Wyman dated 13-year-old Mandy Smith when he was 47. Now, that was wrong. If he had said this instead of doing the cannot remember and I don't sweat routine, it would soon have been old news. Your show is the best on the internet, <laughs> says Thomas Randall. Uh, and Paul says, people should make no mistake. The Prince Andrew interview had nothing to do with clearing his own name. He doesn't feel that he's done anything wrong, judging by his lack of empathy. It was purely damage limitation for the royal family in general, well, if it was, that didn't work so well, did it? Do you think no. the royal family have sustained strategic damage over this? I think that the Twitterati mafia and the attitude of the BBC, which was written on every line of the face of the interviewee, was designed to sort of resurrect the hatred of the royal family that became fashionable amongst quite a lot of people after uh, Diana's uh, funeral in 1997, a funeral which itself could have been designed by Arthur Scargill or other Republicans, even though he would have probably done it on the cheap, which would have been an improvement in my book from the absolute shambles of Blairite pseudo-Republican Europeanism that it was. There was definitely some of that that was going on and at a human level I think everyone's admitting that uh, Andrew did himself no favours but I think there's a, another aspect of this, and I think myself and Paul Embry, the left-wing leader of uh, the Fire Brigade Union, if I got the title correct, we were thinking of the same thing. You were sky-high somewhere between uh, Pakistan and Britain, which was probably the safest place to be, <laughs> which isn't frequently stated about these such things, even though things have improved since the 80s. But he said this, the vitriol that people are voicing, it's not even really about the royal family. It is, but it's about something even bigger because it affects everyone more directly. It's about the fact that this mafioso mentality is throwing out the ancient common law principle of the presumption of innocence. And it reminds me of how important it is when we're talking about Brexit to talk about the common law, which is the finest and most fair legal system that has ever been invented. What we're seeing now is a kind of uh, is a kind of commercial version of what passed for justice in the Soviet Union, where it wasn't about fair and impartial justice, it was about justice in a trial reflecting the will of the people, the mob. In reality, the will of the people was the will of Stalin or Brezhnev or Gorbachev or whoever, whichever tyrant was in charge at that time. But the concept that justice is a popularity contest, when it isn't, justice is about fairness, impartiality, and about 
about truth. It has nothing to do with what people want. It doesn't even have anything to do with the kind of morality people would want. And we're in dangerous territory if all it takes is a quorum of 12,000 angry men and women on Twitter to condemn someone without due process. And my hat which I don't have, off to Paul for saying that. And this is one of the areas where people on the left and the right, but who appreciate things like common law, can absolutely see eye to eye. Patrick is in Louisiana. Let's hear from him. Patrick, welcome. Good evening, gentlemen. How are you, Mr. Galloway? How By are you the doing, grace Adam? of God, very good. Nice to hear from you. Nice Go to ahead. Nice to hear from you, too. Always, always a pleasure. Well, I'm here to pursue my Ph.D. in political science from Galloway Berry University. <laughs> very good. Very good. <laughs> Uh, I'm calling with respect to uh, Bloomberg's candidacy for the presidency mm. of the United States. Yes. Uh, do you think, because I, I look at him as really kind of a wishy-washy, milquetoast, moderate figure who couldn't possibly appeal to the American electorate at large. No. Uh, it, seems to, it seems to me it really depends on who the, who the Democrats nominate. I tend to believe if they nominate someone on the hard left like a Bernie Sanders, he could possibly appeal to kind of a moderate to conservative Democrats, if they still indeed do exist, or, you know, some establishment-type Republicans. But I don't really foresee his candidacy being much of a, of a factor in terms of the outcome of next year's election. What do you and Adam think about this? Well, I think the only way he could become president is if uh, you could uh, literally buy it uh, in an auction. Uh, but uh, let's hear what Adam thinks. Well, whenever Michael Bloomberg threatens to run for American president, which he does every few Regularly. years, it's sort yeah. of the kiss of death for whichever party he's focusing on more. In this case, it would be the Democrats. There is another theory, though, and for legal reasons, I'm not implicating this to Mr. Bloomberg nor anyone else, but in general terms, very rich people give a certain amount of money to both major political parties in the United States. It's called hedging one's bets. Now, if one is standing in the election himself, he can't do that. And we all know that elections are expensive business in America, but the kinds of contributions expected uh, from these big billionaires is possibly even more expensive. It could just be a massive act of frugality disguised as altruism, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't dare implicate <laughs> Mr. Bloomberg in something as crafty as that. Thank you, Patrick. Uh, Richard is in Manchester. Go ahead, Richard. Uh, good evening, George. Uh, I, I thank you for having me on the show. Um, Welcome. I want, to, want to ask you a question, please, George. Yeah. Um, you, you, you've been telling us there's uh, going to be a film called Killing Kelly yeah. about the UMD expert who died three days before the Iraq war started. I just wondered, my pals were talking about it in the pub last night. Has George got that film ready? Yeah, said, as a matter of fact, uh, I'm interviewing uh, a rather surprising and unexpected uh, interviewee for the Killing Kelly film tomorrow. I better not tell you who and Thanks. where uh, because we don't want any accidents. We don't want any accidents <laughs> happening. Yeah, it's nearly, it's nearly finished, Rich. Uh, the, the speaker, Boko, um, when I was waiting for your show to come on tonight, um, yeah. I got into an interview with Speaker Boko, and uh, you, you might smile at this. Uh, at last he's free uh, to exonerate himself and clear his own conscience uh, because I want to remain. I always wanted to remain. I have always been impartial in all my years as a speaker. And he was being interviewed by the great... Great, I love myself, Alistair Campbell. Ah, uh, yes. 
I don't know what you say. No, I know you're doing to. No, I, 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 I referred to it in my own uh, statement on this John Burkow, Alistair Campbell, which we played earlier in the show. So have a have a look at it, Rich. Uh, but yes. I promise you, you'll love Killing Kelly, uh, and Alistair oh, we'll, 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 and, and Al Alistair Campbell will not. I've got to go because there's a legend on the line. It's Norma in Bristol. Go ahead, Norma. Hello, George. Um, I'd just like to make a little point. Yes. Um, apparently, it was called World Kindness Day last Thursday. Yes. Not that anybody knew. Not that anybody paid much attention, no. No, no. Life is, but, life is uh, short of kindness at the minute. Yes. Well, you know, I don't mind disagreement on policies and issues. That's absolutely fine. But what I don't like is these attacks on personalities and unacceptable language. And that loses my respect, you know? I mean, I'm no angel, and I can debate well if it's above the belt, but if it gets nasty, that can hurt people, you and know? And who, who, who do you have in mind? Who is your well, I, I read Well, I read different things on Twitter, and if it's sort of personalities, you know, really bad language about them, it, I just lose respect for those people. Mm. Well, I mean, uh, up to a point, uh, we can all be in favour of virtue and motherhood and, and apple pie. Oh, and I'm so no on. angel. But, uh, <laughs> you know, if, uh, if you ask me to restrain my views uh, on Alistair Campbell or Tony Blair, I'm afraid I'm not able to do that. Neither can I separate their personalities from their political actions. It's not quite as easy to do that as it, on paper, in theory, it, it might seem uh, normal. Let's hear from Adam. Well, my, my own advice would be if one wants to experience a kinder and gentler style of rhetoric, Twitter isn't the place. Twitter, yeah. is, twi Twitter is a place one goes to in search of kindness in the same way that one goes to a brothel in search of chastity. It's just incompatible. But again, this brings me back to my earlier point. Real life, as chaotic and as grim as it's become and becoming, as we were talking about earlier, it's still far better than make-believe land. If you go, if, if, if real life was as violent as the make-believe uh, Disneyland for psychos that is Twitter, the, the, the Mo Tunbridge Wells High Street would look like, would look more dangerous than Somalia in 1992, downtown Mogadishu. So let's be grateful for small miracles and that uh, the real life in this country and in most of the world hasn't degenerated to the level of Twitter. And frankly, well, maybe Kim Jong-un is really onto something. It's one of the few countries in the world that doesn't have all this stuff. So maybe, maybe this is the art of the deal after all, and maybe Trump and Kim can learn something about that from each other the next time they meet over a, over a fast food meal in Singapore. <laughs> Last one. Norma, are you still there? Yes. Um, oh, I can fight like the best of them, George. And the one person that I might not be very nice to is Tony Blair. I agree. Same here. Thank you very much, the legend. That is Norma in Bristol. Uh, the Great Unwashed said, is it a coincidence that Pelosi suddenly changed her mind on impeachment when she saw that Sanders and Warren looked like the likely nominees of the party? Would the Democrats' establishment rather lose to Trump than see Bernie as president? And Paul Stevenson says, uh, what or whom is behind the decision to stand? No, these are the names of individual candidates are really oughtn't at this hour to 
produce them. Uh, a few weeks ago on Moats, when discussing the Hong Kong situation, I found your stance towards the protesters unsympathetic, let's say. Now, because of the violence by the protesters, I'm rapidly starting to understand your stance. Are they overplaying their hand? Well, that's one way of putting it, Adam, isn't it? They have, uh, they have destroyed Hong Kong in, in plain sight. Absolutely, and I actually don't think it's going to ever recover. This can't go on forever. It will eventually end, but Hong Kong's reputation has, in a very, very short expanse of time, gone from night to day. It used to be a place admired for its safety, for its luxury, for its uh, investor-friendly atmosphere, and now you're seeing old people being literally set on fire with Lynch. petrol being yes. thrown upon them. You see arson everywhere. Uh, and violence, and people thinking, we don't want to go there. And so I, I honestly think that we're witnessing the beginning of the end of the Hong Kong as we knew it, and the only people to blame are those who are committing the acts of violence. I'm afraid uh, that's the end of the show. On that sombre note, I, I can't imagine China allowing this to continue for even a few more days uh, because the level of violence against civilians and police alike has reached uh, really catastrophic uh, levels. So don't forget, next Friday, 7 p.m., the Working Men's Club in Dudley Road in West Bromwich. That's where you'll find me. Uh, if you are within striking distance of there, do come along. And don't forget, Adam and me will be performing on the 18th of January at the East Kilbride Village Theatre. You can get your tickets uh, online. They're going quite well, actually, considering there's still about 10 weeks to go and we're in the middle of a general election. And then there's Christmas. I think we're still the best part of 100. I wonder if I should do myself up in the kilt and sparring and the, and the whole thing. I wonder. That's an idea. Who thinks so? Let who, me know. Who thinks I should go... go full brigadoon uh, when we bring him up to uh, East Kilbride. Well, it's been marvellous for me. I hope it was for you, and if it was, come back next week at the same time, same place, and bring other listeners. It's goodbye from me and from Adam. Good night.